I've started each episode with a quip or a riff on the MLM sales pitch. But for our concluding episode, I got nothing. Because nothing is what these distributors walk away with. What happens to the women who come in white hot and hijack your social media feed with their MLMs? Statistically speaking, eventually, they will all go dark. If you somehow manage to show enough restraint and not block or mute or unfriend them, they'll probably pack it in within 12 months. So what happened? The Federal Trade Commission reports that, at best, a participant in an MLM will break even. The FTC also reports that gambling is a safer financial move than joining an MLM. But for every best-case scenario, there's a worst-case scenario. This is the third and final episode of Illegal Tender Season 4. I'm Stephanie Asimkos. Secondhand clothing stores and websites are flush with LuLaRoe leggings. Facebook Marketplace, LetGo, and Craigslist, they're all ripe with products from Collar Street and Melaleuca, Pampered Chef, doTERRA, Unique, and Arbonne, and more. When I search MLM products in New York City online marketplaces, many of the items advertised are still in original packaging. It's unclear why these products are being sold and who's posting them. Is it dissatisfied customers? Or is it ex-distributors looking to offload inventory to recoup losses? Or less likely, active distributors angling for new customers. I say this is the least likely of the scenarios because the products advertised are priced at bargain basement prices. All that means is that getting involved with an MLM is not a side hustle. A side hustle monetizes a spare bedroom or an idle car. So if you strike out with Airbnb or driving for Uber, you still own your home and your Honda Civic. Striking out with an MLM means you're tasked with offloading leggings or nutrition powder that you couldn't sell because no one wanted. You're left with less money and probably less friends than when you started. Let's check back in with Kayla. Remember she told us about the warm and cool leads? Well, it doesn't end with your cold list, because according to her upline, there's always more people you can talk to. It just depends on how far you're willing to go. They would say, you know, basically, you never, you never like blow through a list. There's always more people to talk to. And they said... In these trainings that we go to sometimes, they recommend, you know, drive for Uber, like even go on a dating site, you know, just like talk to people, put yourself in a situ- situations where you get to talk to people. This is fascinating to me. Make actual money selling for Uber so you can talk to people about your MLM 
Tiffany received similar guidance. The most unusual thing that I felt that I did, she wanted me to meet her in the parking lot of Whole Foods and walk around trying to recruit people in the parking lot. Like walk up to a random stranger trying to put their groceries in their car and, and give them a compliment about you know their hair or their shoes or their clothes or something and try to offer them a sample and offer them a, a complimentary facial, right? Which is just so unusual. And we even, she wanted to do it one time in a department store and I couldn't even be bothered to speak to anybody because I felt like the way we were walking around, like with her praying on people, I, I'm like, we look like shoplifters. This is so weird. Like, <laughs> you're not supposed to walk around looking at people all weird and not at like the clothing. <laughs> Tiffany was able to overcome that awkward and ludicrous and uncomfortable advice, but she wasn't able to look past this. The larger shift for me happened when I made a trip back home to Virginia to see my family, um, my mother passed away in 2010 and this was 2014. I told my, my upline, I'm going to see my family. Um, and I'm actually going to be able to sit down with everyone and have lunch on my mom's birthday. And I was really excited to be able to do that. And I told her about that and all she could ask me was, so you're not going to be at the meeting on Tuesday? So my, my mom's birthday is April 30th, so it's the last day of the month. And that's how Mary-Kate does their things. They want you to, um, I, I can't remember exactly, but there's like qualifying orders. So when you're a director and you're you're trying to, or when you're trying to become a director, anybody who's in your downline, they're counting all those monthly orders. And and that's fine, lady, if you want to drive whatever little car it is that they're, they're trying to get you to buy, but... I just, I just can't imagine making that a priority. Like, like, hey, I need you to order $300 of lip gloss today or something crazy like that over caring about people, people's lives. <laughs> well, definitely not. And then while I was in Virginia trying to see the family that I only get to see once a year, she sent me six Facebook messages, uh, another, you know, 10 Facebook notifications, 10 text messages for voicemails, um, pressuring me to place an order by the end of the month so that she could reach whatever goal she was trying to reach to get her car. And I thought I was friends with this woman and that she had listened to me and knew that it was just really emotional time and just really special that I could be with my family on my mom's birthday, even though she was gone. And it became pretty evident to me that she did not care about me as a person at all. So I, I had to bail out. <laughs> when she returned to California, she put her exit strategy into action. So I think I just sent her a text and said, this is definitely not for me. And I'm, I'm just going to get everything packed up and shipped off. And she said, that's fine. And um, I did it in May for sure. And I, and I quit my job. Keep in mind that Tiffany's describing something that happened over six years ago. But it's still very painful. I'm totally fine. It's just the emotion is it's more tied to... I'm going to just take a breath. Yeah. <laughs> the emotion's more tied to um, just the loss itself. And then 
I think we've all been there in our lives, no matter whether it's MLM related or not, just thinking that you found a friend in a new place, but then they turn out to not be, you know, authentic or real or caring or any of those things. So that's part of it. But yes, absolutely. I am 100% um, talking to you right now because I don't want other people to be treated this way. And, and, and I've read a lot of horror stories about MLMs that um, go after, you know, women who either have, or maybe their children have, you know, various types of cancers and things like that. And they're trying to convince them, you know, maybe these will help you either prevent that, or maybe you can make money doing this while you're, child is having leukemia treatments and I'm like you have got to be kidding me I'm from the south you're supposed to like go drop off a casserole and and give them a hug you're not supposed to ask them to sell makeup for you she wasn't out totally she still had some work to do then I know what I need to do to send my product back and Mary Kay will allow you to send product back within 12 months as long as everything is in its original packaging so I think that I only was in for four or five months tops um, because she got so nasty with me and I thought we were friends. As soon as I got back from my Virginia trip, I started um, packaging everything up, boxing it all back up. I kept all of the packaging receipts and all of the original packaging and I sent it all back. And it's... Uh, it's just a bummer because it was my, one of my first like uh, friendship experiences moving away from an area I was used to, you know, they, all of these MLM companies, they talk it up like it's going to be some, some community of women that support each other, but it is, it is exactly the opposite. Jessica's blazing moment of clarity came and she knew she had to leave. So about eight or so months in, I was out to dinner with my family and I get a text from a friend, a dear friend of mine, another person that I had formerly worked with. And she texted me saying that she was waiting uh, to get her license in this uh, certain job that she had just went to school for. She was waiting to test for it and get a license for it. And while she was waiting, she was looking for a way to make some extra money. And she asked me if she should join Color Street. Now, this is the point where I guess someone else, and maybe a, a normal MLM participant, would just, you know, be really excited that they're going to be able to get somebody in their clutches and put them in their downline. But my answer was no, absolutely not. This is not where you want to look for it, for getting any extra money. I told her that it's unless you want to work a lot of hours each week to really build up a huge network of people to make a little bit of money, you're not only not going to make money, but you will be pressured to put your own money into this. And so, of course, her response was kind of, yikes, and thanks for telling me I'm not going to pursue this. And then I actually was able to go on and help her find a legitimate source of income, thankfully. Looking back, I, I feel really stupid. I feel like If you just looked at this impression of this person, it's not me. You know, you wouldn't read this story and then look at me and think that it was the same person that fell for this. But I think that's what kept me involved for so long was that fear of failure and that fear of when I finally came clean to my husband about the financial side of it, 
what was going to happen? What was he going to think of me? You know, is this going to ruin my marriage? Am I going to lose friends? It's so much fear and the fear motivates you to keep going. And I think that's what I fell for, unfortunately. And as for how much money she made, well, for her, ignorance is bliss. Yep, I never did that math. Okay. <laughs> and I love math. Right. I love to make unnecessary spreadsheets and do math all the time, but I never wanted to know, so I never looked back at that. I probably have a good idea of how much debt I racked up um, on these credit cards that I opened. So the day that I had the financial conversation with my husband, it actually, it's it, it burned into my memory. And it's not solely because of only Color Street. Partly it's because I had to quit my job, which definitely put us in a position where, you know, obviously we were one salary short, so it was difficult to begin with. And that was a time when what we really needed was to make some good financial decisions to supplement our income. You know, incomes, this person that recruits me, making me believe that that was the answer. Fast forward 10 months when now we're much further into debt and it was weighing on me so much that I was visibly stressed out and just constantly worried about finances. And my husband, thankfully being the good man that he is, sat me down and said, he he had asked me several times before this to just show him everything. And he said to me, just show it to me because I want to help because I can see that this is very stressful for you. So I would like to know how I can help you. And so finally, you know, through tears, I was saying, you're going to be mad at me because I have ruined us and I've made all these bad decisions and you're going to hate me. But I finally just laid it all out in front of him. And he didn't get upset. He wasn't angry. He didn't hate me. He just said, okay, let's figure out what we can do going forward to make this better. And so we actually met with a financial advisor. We got some advice on how to clean things up going forward. And we're still working through that, but we're on a good path now. And thankfully, I think it made us stronger in the end because all of that fear, thinking that he was going to look at me like a failure and and like I was stupid and like I did this really bad thing, thankfully, none of that happened. And he was supportive with helping us move forward. And now, thankfully, he understands why I feel so strongly against people getting involved in MLMs. And so for me, things are good now. And we're moving in a good direction. Right now, I'm busy with my boys, and so I don't have time to take on anything else. Even though I'm constantly asked to join parties, and I'm constantly having people try to recruit me just because I have that extroverted personality that they're looking for. But now I've learned how to politely say no. And so we're good. And now it's just hoping that I can politely help other people to make good decisions too. And as for Kayla? I 
started in March of 2016. I was basically active until like September of 2017. So it was in the those first six months where I made about $400. And I had gone through and I had added up my expenses with another um, friend of mine that was in the company, also a former distributor. And conservatively, I had spent about $3,000. And the worst thing about that was a lot of that was my family's money. They had helped me go to conventions and pay for meetings and trainings and stuff. So yeah, it was $3,000 spent of my money and my family's money. That Those first three months were like the only time I was consistently buying products. But yeah, they, um, they wanted you to buy the products and they wanted you to like, they called it, you, you need to be a product of the product. So like you are your own customer, but I just couldn't afford it. Kayla was done. She was tired of the guilt tripping and manipulation. She shared with me that during this time, her self-esteem had cratered. It was also pretty lucky that around this same time, she noticed that her upline went dark. So she took it as an opportunity to fade to black. But she was still a distributor in name. Her experience with Kayani had such a grip on her that it wasn't until she recounted her experience with me that she officially severed ties. I'll let her explain. Just to like drive home the point of how much this affects affect me, I didn't even officially like cancel my distributorship until last week. That's just how much like I was still scared to go through with that to officially end it. What so were you I'm scared of? Just um, I I didn't know like if my upline was going to be notified. I didn't know like basically you you call you get a form and you have to email it back. I didn't know if like my reason was going to be valid, and it was just like. I would I, all of these years, all of these um, this time that I put into it, that it, like it officially ended. Well, congrats! Thank you. And did anything uh, happen? No, I, I was so yeah. So I'm officially out of that. But um, sorry, Caleb. What what no. were you afraid of? Like, what would happen? Like, if your upline was notified. Like, were you afraid that someone would contact you and sort of, like, start you in with this mess all over again? Or did you just have, like, a broader fear of, like, oh, I just can't go back? I think both. I mean, it was just kind of, like, I didn't want somebody messaging me and be like, hey, you know, I saw you ended your distributorship. You know, let's talk. Um, Can, you know, just anything. I just don't want to be stuck back into it at all. Yeah, and also, I mean, like, there's always that fear of kind of retribution, you know? So it was just, a lot of it was irrational fears, but it just was like, it had such a hold on me. So if Kayla, Jessica, and Tiffany all bailed, and their stories represent thousands, how do these MLMs continue? It's a great question. I mean, who does succeed? And who are those people at the conventions who go on stage and regale about their second and third homes and talk about how they drive Italian sports cars? Bill helps us out here. 
They're real people. We don't always know if it's real money. But right. remember, uh, whether a business model is legitimate or fraudulent, you have to have success stories. Uh, you can't create and sustain an MLM-style pyramid scheme unless you have success stories. And so the question that that, that then asks is, how do you succeed? Uh, so um, if you ask anyone who's in the industry, uh, they will tell you very simply, hard work. Of course. That's how I succeeded. That's how everybody succeeded. It's hard work. I actually don't think that's probably true in most cases. And so with this notion of um, we're all out there working at this, and often you'll hear on the stage of those people you were just talking about, anybody can do this. If I can do this, anybody can do this. Well, actually, everybody can't do it, right? That's right. By definition, everybody can't do it. If you look at the earning statements of these companies, you know everybody can't do it. So if everybody can't do it, who can do it? Um, and basically what we see here in these uh, structures is sort of three layers. You see the very top layer who actually creates the company, puts in place all the necessary uh, MLM software for compensation schemes and all that sort of stuff. And they're all somewhat different from each other. And then you bring in people, often people who will move over from another MLM, and they're going to be your recruitment engine. And they're going to help you recruit a layer of people um, who are, are prospective success stories. And then there's going to be everybody else. We're nearing the end of the season, and by now the word cult has probably screeched like a siren in your inner monologue. And you're right. The similarities are eerie. Well, what destructive cults do and what many MLMs have done is basically a bait-and-switch con. That's Rick Allen Ross. He's an expert on destructive cults, and he's the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute. Over his nearly 40-year career, he's performed more than 500 interventions around the world. When we connected, we discussed the overlap between cults and MLMs. Here's what he had to say. So there is this... uh, basic bait and switch con. Uh, That is to get you in, they will tell you whatever. That's the bait. And then when you get in comes the switch, which is more work than you expected, more money than you uh, imagined that you would spend, and increasing demands being made on your time. And uh, this is not what you really thought it was in the beginning, but that's what it becomes once you become immersed in the MLM, and many of these MLMs have a kind of corresponding subculture of people that you become involved with, and they become your social uh, existence. And they can make it sound very appealing. And they, in an MLM, they'll talk about, oh, this person became very rich. Look at this person. They bought a new Corvette. This person always has a, a new BMW every two years. And they really don't tell you the actual facts. Kayla, Tiffany, and Jessica manage to get out, but others need outside intervention. If someone you know and care for is neck deep in an MLM, 
and you know the MLM is causing stress on their relationships and finances, naturally you want to intervene. You want to guide that person towards the light. But sometimes taking that first step could feel like a mile. For starters, you can send them this podcast. But listen, I get that you're not going to get very far suggesting to someone who's up to their eyeballs in an MLM that they should spend any time listening to a podcast that questions their very choices. It's fine. I'm not offended. But for practical advice on how to extract your loved one out of their first, second, or third MLM, Rick can assist. When I do an intervention, it's basically broken down into uh, four basic building blocks. Uh, Number one, defining what is a destructive cult or what is uh, an an exploiting MLM. Number two, identifying the coercive persuasion techniques that are used to gain undue influence. Number three, talking about what is happening with this particular group or MLM that the person who's involved really doesn't know about, information that may have been kept from them. Uh, For example, uh, how much money the average person in the MLM actually makes, litigation against the MLM that they're not aware of, uh, and things uh, regarding the founder or the history of the group. And then finally, the fourth block is why is your family so worried about you? I'll let Rick continue with his list of intervention conversation starters. Uh, Have you lost your job? Have you lost a lot of money? Have you maxed out your credit cards? Is your house filled with product from the MLM uh, stacked in every closet? I mean, what's going on in your life that made your family bring me in to do an intervention? What I would encourage people to do is ask them, is, is ask yourself, how many hours a month do I put into this MLM? And what is my net uh, takeaway? I mean, how much money do I actually make? And if I divide the, the number of hours that I spend uh, promoting the plan, selling the plan, uh, selling product, if I divide those hours into my net profit, how much am I really making an hour? Am I making more than I would if I got a job at uh, Walmart or Costco or or Trader Joe's? I mean, what am I really doing here? So what can someone do? What kind of legal aid can someone get? With so many people burned, you'd think there'd be angry mobs with pitchforks ready to take down MLMs. That's not the case. Doug Brooks has practiced law. Practiced it? started Doug Brooks. Doug Brooks has practiced law since 1982. For nearly 40 years, he's represented MLM victims in class action suits, and he's prosecuted MLMs. He tells us what makes a strong case. And the only thing that makes the case economically viable is if you have a class. So instead of having one person who lost $100, you have, you know, 100,000 people who lost $100. And then it becomes possible to take the case on a contingency basis. But the result is you have a, a, a client that really didn't lose much and they're not really that involved in the case. But with the multi-level marketing cases, what I found is, first of all, the losses were bigger. You know, people can lose thousands of dollars. 
and the people who who finally realized that they they lost and that they were suckered and that they were defrauded they're pissed off and they're motivated and it it is stimulating as a lawyer to represent people like this because they they are actively involved in the case so even though these are not very profitable cases uh, from a lawyer's point of view they are uh, stimulating and, and gratifying to to work on most of the time people people's losses at in these companies uh, are within the whatever the jurisdictional limit of those things so you could do it yourself you can go to a lawyer um, the the problem with going to a lawyer like me or like like anyone who does this stuff is that um, even if you have tens of thousands of dollars in losses, the lawyer cannot afford to take your case. You can't afford to pay them, and they can't take the case unless it's a class action. Right now, Doug is basically saying that MLMs leave people so broke that they can't pay for legal representation, and they're embarrassed to step forward. Your friendship, your relationship was... was. Uh, was used, was abused, yes, uh, and you were chumped. And if you got into it, you started recruiting other people. Yeah, so and not you only blurred those boundaries. You're not as only well. are you a victim, you're also a perpetrator. Yes. So there's not only shame, there's fear. And so when the FTC studies fraud, every once in a while they do a fraud survey, and they they look at all the different types of fraud. And one of the things they found out is that victims of pyramid schemes are the least likely to complain about what happened to them than any other type of fraud because, uh, I would say, because of that shame and the fear and the embarrassment and and the desire to just say, this thing that I devoted my life to, which turned out to be uh, a fraud, I, I just want to walk away from it. I don't want to hear about it anymore. The best you can do? Doug says, "Just cut your losses." It's um, uh, one of the one of the behavioral things is is called the sunk cost fallacy, which means you know what, the more you put into something, the less willing you are to to drop it because um, you want to win back that money that you lost, and so it's very difficult to say, "I am never going to see that money again." It's gone. Um, I have to uh, uh, move on. Um, this is this is actually a, a very um, another complex question. There's there are there are whole chapters in the MLM playbook for reeling people back in. I'm a journalist. It's my moral and professional obligation to report the truth, the unbiased truth, and that's what you've heard. Well-respected experts have presented the facts, and that is MLM's all-but-guarantee failure. You've heard three emotional and raw accounts from real women who have been victimized by MLMs. But I'll tell you what, their stories represent just the tip of the MLM horror show iceberg. In the months I spent reporting this podcast... I exchanged over a hundred emails with people around the world. They shared their first-hand MLM experiences. 
They were equal parts cathartic and cautionary. Story after story after story landed in my inbox, and each expressed an honest vulnerability, and they described a really painful moment in time. I read of instances of cyberbullying. There was one open police investigation someone told me about. Credit card debt. And then there was a distributor who openly shamed her aunt who had just received a cancer diagnosis. She followed it up with a pitch for her MLM and that it was the perfect antidote to cancer. There were multiple instances of sisters and cousins and best friends who no longer speak and marriages in ruin, all because of MLMs. And I'll be honest, at times, it was depressing as all hell. Depressing because it resonates with so many, but more, it's depressing because it's still happening. If there's one call to action, it is to stop supporting the MLM companies. Don't allow the refrains of sisterhood and female entrepreneurship con you into buying something you probably don't need or something outside of your budget. Although it may sound counterintuitive, being a customer or cheerleader to a friend or relative in an MLM is not supporting them. What you're actually doing is giving them a hit of false hope. It's a drug to them. It validates their actions. And for every purchase you make from an MLM distributor, someone at the very top of that MLM is taking a major percentage of your money. Meanwhile, the person you care for is working her tail off for pocket change. We've heard from the experts, and it's not about leggings or lotion or lipstick. These MLM companies prey on women. They pump them up with lies, like the promise of a better life and economic freedom, only to bilk them for everything they're worth and shattering their dignity in their wake. And this isn't just happening in the U.S. MLM companies have spread around the world. They've found distributors in Asian markets and African markets, and they're repeating the same things there. To bring this story home, I yield Jessica my time. I think a lot of people, and certainly myself included, before this happened to me, a lot of people probably look at MLMs as being harmless. And they probably look at it as if an adult wants to decide to get involved with that business, that's their choice. What's the harm in getting together with your friends and looking at Tupperware? But the true dark side of it is the deception that you can't truly make an informed decision about something if most of the real information is being hidden from you. And the truth is that a lot of people are losing money. A lot of people are having conversations with their husbands that they've opened up secret credit cards and it doesn't always turn out okay. And they lose friends and they lose family. And so it is not okay to say that just because a few people are being successful and it's not hurting them, that it's okay for these other people to go through that experience. It's, it's kind of like the, the ethical questions, like the, the trolley problem. You know, if we really look at this, if, if MLM business models are outlawed, 
you're not hurting anyone. But allowing them to continue to be in business, it's clearly proven that people are really being hurt. And then there's one more thing that I feel really strongly about when it comes to the dangers of MLMs. And that is particularly the ones that are in the health and fitness industry. You'll sometimes get these individuals that go to these trainings and all of a sudden they think that they're an expert on something. And now they're giving people advice and it doesn't always turn out okay. It can actually be very harmful, these things that they're suggesting that people do. And one thing that I saw the other day that it just still makes me feel nauseated when I think about it is this person that's involved in one of the essential oil companies. She shared a quote saying, why is it that patients are told there's nothing we can do, a disease that's caused by something that they're doing? And then she goes on to talk about cancer and how only a small part of cancer is actually genetic and you need these essential oils to prevent these diseases. And it really resonated with me in a bad way because I suffer from two different chronic diseases. One of them is very painful and debilitating. And I'm in a Facebook group, a support group for it. And in the support group, unfortunately, the topic of suicide comes up so often that the suicide hotline number is pinned in this group. And can you imagine someone in that state of mind being told that it's their fault, that they're hurting, and that it's because they're not doing enough, they're not buying enough essential oils to make themselves feel better? It blows my mind that there are companies out there that are allowed to feed people this kind of information. It's not harmless. With all of our guests, we asked for permission to use their names in the podcast. This is what Kayla had to say about that. Just one thing I wanted to add is just like, I want to be out there because I want my name to be out there. I want my picture to be out there because so many former distributors, like I've seen, they won't even come forward or they'll talk if you like black out their their face or hide their identity. And I want to be out there. Like I want to be a voice for these people that are so scared to come forward. So yeah, please use my name, my picture. Illegal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Stephanie Simkos. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Thank you to Robert Fitzpatrick, Doug Brooks, Bill Keep and Rick Ross for sharing your knowledge. And thank you to Kayla Imhoff, Tiffany St. Lawrence, and Jessica for putting it all out on the line and sharing your stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender. Illegal Tender.